Esther chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Asphatha and Paratha, and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmashta, and Arizai, and Aridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. 
So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan which he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they call these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because all of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly bound themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in the words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther bound them, and as they had bound themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of the Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honour of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Thanks, Hannah. Do keep that passage open. We're going to be looking at that together. Also, an um, outline of where we're going in your service sheet. So please do make use of that. And there will be question time at the end. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good and sovereign. And pray as your people now that we would vindicate these characteristics of you in our response to your word, that we would listen, trust and obey. Amen. There are a number of dates and events that can make up the Christian calendar year. Easter, Christmas, Reformation Day, Ash Wednesday, Lent, Good Friday, Advent, All Saints Day, Shrove Tuesday, Remembrance Day, Trinity Sunday, Mother's Day, Pentecost, and Maundy Thursday. And I suspect there are all kinds of different reasons for why people like to follow such an order to the Christian year. For some, it's tradition. It's what we've always done. For others, it provides activity and a reason to do something with other people. It can be to remember certain things or commemorate significant events in redemptive history. 
It can be for the benefits we receive from them. Chocolate eggs at Easter, presents at Christmas. One justification for a Christian calendar year might be because we see a parallel with the Jewish calendar year. As we read through the Old Testament, the Jews are given a number of festivals to celebrate, whether it be the Passover, the Feast of Booths, the Day of Atonement, the Sabbath, and as we meet in Esther 9, the Feast of Purim. So the Christian calendar year is seen to take its basic shape from the ancient feasts of Israel. Just as they had their days, so we have ours. Is that kind of reasoning justified? Well, it was in Esther chapter 9 that the 13th day of Adar arrived. The significance of the date was introduced to us back in Esther chapter 3 as the date of Haman's edict for the Jews to be destroyed. But since then, a second edict had been issued in Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8 verse 11 an edict saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Confident that the battle was the Lord's, the Jews already knew the outcome and had already celebrated with a festival, chapter 8, verse 17. But it's not until Esther chapter 9 that the 13th day of Adar arrived. And as we saw, on the very day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to get mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now, there's a few things uh, just to highlight about their mastery. The first is that while there is some bloodshed, the impression is given that much of the opposition just melted away because of the support for Mordecai. So Esther chapter 9, verse 3, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. But whether it's through the fear of Mordecai or through the the destruction at the hands of the Jews, the the account is, is presented in such a way that deliverance for the Jews ultimately came from, well, from the one whom there is an absence of the mention of. Mordecai's confidence seems to be well placed. Second, what are we to make of Haman's ten sons being killed in verses 7 to 10? I mean, at one level, to list the names of Haman's dead sons was to reinforce Haman's total defeat. No one remained to support his cause. But there is a wider theme here because, if you recall, Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were known enemies of Israel, and God had told Saul to destroy them all back in 1 Samuel 15. 
Yet it was because Saul decided instead to spare some of the Amalekites that Haman was around. And so to spare Haman's sons would be to make the same mistake. At the end of the day, the Jews are not delivered if they've not destroyed all their enemies. The final thing to highlight about their mastery is the extension to the edict for one more day that Esther secures. At one level, this indicates the comprehensiveness of the relief that the Jews experience. There's relief not only in Susa, but also throughout uh, all the king's provinces. However, the emphasis here is less on the comprehensiveness of the victory, but rather to provide an explanation why there ends up in two days of celebration. It was the Jews who lived in Susa who celebrated on the 15th of Adar, verse 18, whereas the Jews in the rest of the empire, well, they celebrated on the 14th of Adar, verse 19. Well, this last point takes us to the purpose of why the book of Esther was written, at least at one level. It wasn't simply written to relate what happened. Esther isn't simply narration. Rather, the purpose of Esther is to explain why Israel is to celebrate the Feast of Purim. That is, Esther is legislative. Now, at the time that the narrator's writing, the festival has already begun to be celebrated by the Jewish community, verse 19. But it's Mordecai, who is now the head of the community, who writes to make the feast permanent in the Jewish calendar. Now, maybe by the time that Esther is written, there's some kind of dispute about what day the feast should be celebrated, in which case Mordecai um, is acting to adjudicate. And Esther provides the explanation why the festival has been celebrated by different parts of the community on either of these two days. Mordecai then is urging them either to all celebrate on both days or he's urging them to celebrate the particular day appropriate to their location. Either way, Mordecai goes about securing the lasting endurance of this Feast of Purim. Now, do note that Purim was to be an occasion of joy. Let's pick it up from chapter 9, verse 22. Because um, Purim, uh, keeping those days as the days on which the Jew got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Mordecai established the character of the festival. They were to celebrate these days like the days in which they gained relief from their enemies and the month which was transformed from them from sadness to joy and from mourning to celebration. Purim was to be a permanent fixture in the Jewish calendar year to celebrate the day on which they got relief from their enemies. Well, the book ends with a description of Mordecai. 
the Jew who had become the right-hand man to King Ahasuerus. The book had begun with the Jews at the mercy of the tyrant king, who would have had them destroyed. But the book ends with, um, well, now Mordecai, who's well-placed to represent his people and secure their best interests. I wonder, who does Mordecai remind you of? I mean, there are certain parallels, are there not, with Joseph? They both occupied significant positions of authority for the benefit of Israel. They both relied on God's providence. They both played a crucial role in the deliverance and relief of Israel from impending danger. And the significance of this parallel, I think, connects the book of Esther with the wider biblical story. It not only underlines God's one plan of redemption, but the consistent character of God. I mean, Esther is the only book in the Bible where there is an absence of the mention of his name. Yet it is rich in his providential provision and care of his people. It is to Israel that he has given the promises, and he will preserve them for the future gift of the Messiah. Well, we began by considering the Christian calendar year and reasons to follow on. In particular, how the Christian calendar year might be considered to take its basic shape from the ancient feasts of Israel. It's not that we necessarily decide to keep, for example, the Feast of Purim, but that we see a correspondence between that feast and the special day that we want to keep that somehow justifies it. But the problem with such a justification is that it doesn't appreciate the fulfilment of the promises that we see in the coming of Jesus Christ. Take Purim, for example. That was a feast to celebrate the relief that the Jews experience from the hands of Haman. But such relief from their enemies was only partial. Their enemies weren't completely destroyed, and so they never enjoyed ultimate rest from them. And it's precisely because the relief they enjoyed wasn't complete that the Feast of Purim anticipated a future event where God's people would enjoy ultimate relief from their enemies. Now I think if I suggested to you that we ought to celebrate Purim as an application of this text, you might rightly say, hang on a minute, we're not Jews, we're not even proselytes, and therefore it doesn't apply to us. Now that much is true. But we can also say that to keep the Feast of Purim, even for a Jew, would obscure the fact that final relief for God's people has now come. We're no longer in the days of looking forward to deliverance, but we have already received it in the personal work of Christ. Sure, there's a now and not yet to our experience of it, but that doesn't deny that, in principle, it is already ours. To celebrate Purim would obscure that and diminish the greater joy that is now ours in Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that the confidence of your people um, in Esther was well-placed in you and that you did indeed give them relief from their enemies. And as such, they were to commemorate that each year with joy. But we thank you how, whilst that was only partial relief from them, it anticipated the fulfillment of your promises uh, that are now fulfilled in your son. We thank you that he has defeated death, sin, Satan, that he is now seated above all power and authority, and that we are seated with him. We thank you for the secure position that gives us and how we look forward to that day on his return when the kingdom that's already been inaugurated will be consummated and we will enjoy the ultimate rest with him. Amen. Okay, chance for any questions you might have. Now is your opportunity. Hi, uh, Henry. So, yes, so I, I think I heard all that. You're saying in Chapter 8 they were allowed to take the plunder, but in Chapter 9 they didn't take the plunder. That's interesting, isn't it? You'd like to know why. Well, so um, uh, so it doesn't say, so in that sense, we have to kind of read between the lines. Oh, let me just do, for the recording, let me just, so Esther chapter 8, the edict in verse 11 at the end there is not only are they allowed to destroy their enemies, but they're allowed to plunder their goods. We're in chapter 9, I think it's three times, isn't it, Henry? It says, so verse 10, they laid no hand on the plunder. Uh, verse 15, no hand on the plunder. And somewhere else as well. So the commentator um, took us back to Genesis 14, 23, which is interesting, which is a bit about Melchizedek, which we'll be looking at on Sunday. And if you have a look at Genesis 14... And here, there's been a defeat. Um, but let me just read 17 to 24, just for the context. So after his return from a defeat of Chaldor Laoma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing that the young man have eaten and share uh, of the men who went with me. Let Ener, Eshkol and Mamre take their share. So there's a lot going on there, but the basic bit is, is there in verse uh, 23, where basically Abraham, he's not prepared to take a share in the plunder, lest it be said that actually um, that's the reason why he's become um, rich. Um, so it seems to be along those lines that basically... I think in Esther, although they could have taken the plunder because Edith allowed them to, they preferred not to enrich themselves through the fall of the enemy and take their plunder. So I think that's what's going on. It's interesting because I think in Egypt, they do take the plunder. And actually that plunder is actually then used for the uh, furnishings and the construction of the tabernacle. But here they choose not to take the plunder and therefore risk it being misconstrued and that actually they're they're basically yeah their their riches their um their status somehow then becomes dependent upon that which they've planned from the enemies so something like that is that right yeah anybody else Nathan. Nine, nine verse... Okay, so let me just read uh, chapter 9, verse 12. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have you done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. So you're thinking like, what's, what does the king mean when he says, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Interesting. I mean, one thing is interesting is, well, another interesting thing, I should say, is that the... Um, uh, Esther doesn't ask for a second request. So Esther's got her request. And so unprovoked, the king then just says, what else do you want? Um, so 
I mean, I'd, I'd taken that more that it seems to be that the king is thinking, wow, this is, the Jews are the ones to back, you know, because he's appointed Mordecai. Everyone's fearing Mordecai. So I don't know if that, when he says, what they have done in the rest of the king's provinces is almost like, um, you know, basically he's supporting, seems to be supporting their cause precisely because they are being victorious. So I think he maybe is hedging his bets and then is happy then to say to Esther, well, what, how can I help? What else do you want? And Esther says, oh, can I have another day? By all means, you know, complete the, complete the destruction. Which is interesting, so I guess if the king is quite whimsical, he's just thinking, actually, Haman has had his day, I've now got Mordecai, he's head of this community that's clearly got the upper hand, and therefore, is that in some way sort of a supporting, supporting them? Which I guess it would re relate back to that big theme of God's providence, again, because like, the king doesn't really know his reason for offering Esther a further request might just be to further his own cause, yet the reader understands that actually he's, he, he, you know, Esther doesn't even need to ask him anymore. You know, before Esther was worried about approaching the king, now the king is just like, Esther, tell me what you want. I will, I will I'll give you my full resources for, the, for, the, for, for your people. So, cool. One more? Go on, Nikki. So you said uh, a link between the, the tax and the Okay. Yeah, I think, so just for the recording, is there a link between um, the king imposing tax on the land and then the higher place of Mordecai? I think so, because I think it then, because I think the book starts with the king, Ahasuerus, he's, he's sovereign over the kingdoms, he's the, he's the king, but he's a tyrant and the whim of Haman under him, the Jews could have been annihilated. Whereas I think chapter 10, verse 1, st still supports the fact that King Ahasuerus is still king. So it's still he's the kingdom. But now we've got a new second in command, Mordecai, who is there and is able to support the welfare of the people and provide peace for them. So I wonder if rather than that kingdom's gone and another kingdom's come, it's actually it's the same kingdom. The change has been, Haman has been, if you like, replaced by Mordecai, and that that secures the Jews. So the Jews, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, the Jews are in a much stronger place, um, and it supports Mordecai's position because if if the king was was, I mean, I guess imposing taxes you know, implies he's in control. You know, he's running his kingdom. And obviously, it's that kingdom that Mordecai is number two, and therefore that puts him in a strong position to secure his people for the future. 
think so. Cool. All right, we'll leave it there. Um, and but do continue to talk about these things uh, afterwards. We're going to sing again um, another carol of sorts, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel.